Gamers, this is Liz Davidson from Beyond Solitaire, and this week on the Beyond Solitaire podcast, my very special guest is Christina Carl. How you doing, Christina? How do, how do. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, it's great to have you. So what exactly is it that you do right now? Uh, I am a uh, sports editor for ESPN.com. Uh, used to be a Major League Baseball sports editor, and that's where uh, I've spent most of the last 25 years is working on uh, Major League Baseball. But uh, now I work on our nightly coverage of every sport that there is, and uh, there are so many. But uh, so whether it's college basketball, pro basketball, playoff football, uh, baseball, you name it, women's basketball. I'm there for all of it for ESPN. That is amazing. And it's even more amazing because you and I actually have a really similar educational background, including that we both <laughs> went to that finest of universities, the University of Chicago. Uh, what did you study while you were there? I studied modern European history uh, sporadically when I wasn't dodging out to get to the ballpark because, of course, one of the beautiful things, especially if you grew up on a on a ranch as I did, uh, moving into a major city like Chicago, is that, boom, there are ballparks right there. So going up and seeing the White Sox and the Cubs and skipping class uh, to go watch baseball, I would have to confess I did more than I should have as in my first couple of years uh, when I was a especially uh, irresponsible undergraduate. But uh, uh, I basically took it as my challenge that if the University of Chicago is supposed to be the most miserable place on earth, I was going to unprove that and I was going to go have as much fun as I possibly could in a city like Chicago. Scandal. How dare you? You don't sound like a Chicago student. No, I'm joking. <laughs> and then did you, is that also where you got your master's? No, I got my master's up on the north side at uh, Loyola University, Chicago, although at the time I was still living in Hyde Park for a stretch and then out in the western suburbs. But no, I, I got my uh, master's in public history and history at Loyola um, when I was considering moving on into uh, a PhD track and uh, getting a doctorate in history. And then I decided that that was probably not a very good uh financial move for my future. I uh, always like to joke that uh, if I was going to want to teach people about the diet of worms, I was probably making a prediction about what I was going to be living on. <laughs> so you are, uh, in, so basically you like European history and around what era, what was your, what was your time period of choice? I, I particularly liked the 19th century and the 18th century. I took, uh, you know, I loved revolutions. I loved periods of change. I loved, you know, uh, people reinventing ideas and coming up against the limitations of ideas. So like, you know, like an essay, I, you know, like one of my favorite things just to have read was like, you know, Turgot's on foundations and, you know, like, so looking at the French encyclopedias of the 18th century, but also, you know, and, and okay, I'm going to say I like Marx and Engels. I liked, uh, you know, like Freud as a, as a, as an observer of historical events, I enjoyed Max Weber. You know, like the University of Chicago, you you spend a lot of time reading the original source stuff. But the other thing that I minored in during my time at the UFC was the was um, 
classics or ancient history. So uh, reading, and this is where we have a lot of crossover because uh, I spent time, a lot of time uh, doing coursework on Roman history and uh, got to take uh, still one of my favorite classes of all time at any level was uh, Rick Saller's course on Tacitus. And uh, reading Tacitus as a historical source and learning that he is not I mean, every fiction reader has that moment where they realize, like in some novels, where they realize that that your narrator isn't being entirely honest with you. And when that coin drops and when you're reading Tacitus for the first time, where it's like, he's not on the level, is he? He's he's that's not right. That didn't. It, no. And. And when you figure that out about a historical source as an 18-year-old, you know, like, that, that's an important moment where you, like, and maybe now in the world after X-Files, everybody learns to question everything or whatever. But dealing with that on that level with a historical source and understanding that uh, even historical sources, they you might put them in capital H history, but uh, that they have their own agenda. And figuring that out with a source and figuring out where they're bending the truth to tell you the story they want you to hear is fascinating as as an exercise but then in terms of what it teaches you to what to look for in history and what to you know like what other sources to consider and and really where as a historian you're supposed to the the real job as opposed to merely just recounting events well history is always two stories right you know you're reading the story of the history that you're studying and then the person who's telling the history is also telling you a story about themselves and where they are where they're coming from and so you're always getting something Double narrative, which I love. So how do you go from peak nerdiness, which I very much appreciate, to sports? No, I'm kidding. I like sports. But how do you get there? How does this happen? Well, I mean, a lot of the things that you learn in history um, or learn to value in terms of particularly from a multidisciplinary approach, all of that stuff has a place in sports in terms of you're not just talking about history. Um, but you're also talking about economic history. You're, you're talking about pub areas of public policy when you're talking about stadium construction. You're talking about things like race and gender when you're talking about integration of baseball in American society, um, where women get to play, particularly today, and like, you know, the professionalization or the expansion of women's sports. Um, you know, even the introduction of women's sports and how controversial that was in the 30s um, for the Olympics. And all of that stuff, is about people fundamentally, and that's what history is about. So sports is just an area where people are engaged, they care, they're invested in the outcomes, not just of the sports themselves, but, uh, you know, out of their own personal interest, but because they also like to play. And so all of that kind of dovetails into it's, it's history in the moment being made and then learning about how to tell those stories and what kind of tools you get to utilize to tell them. And so whether that's, using data-driven journalism or whether that's using oral history and you're going back and looking at, you know, people recounting like the way things were, um, whether you're doing, you know, your own reportage and learning to use access in a way that makes a measurable di difference in terms of like, you know, on the one hand, you might have like the straight story from the Associated Press, but that bare bones detail skeleton of what happened in a, at an event at a game in a guy's career is not the full story. And so as a historian, you want to look at it in even more detail or find a more interesting way to get into it and, you know, like tell something that actually captures people's imaginations. So sports 
yeah, it it's it's a ha- it it isn't just my happy place, but it was also un- wound up being like a place where I found a career because way back in the go go days of the nineties, in uh, the invention of the internet, um, I was finding other people who were interested in sports and interested in quantitative analysis in sports um, through the through the old Usenet discussion groups, and through that um, launched kind of like a one of our what like effectively like one of the first like independent journalism projects um baseball prospectus and so we and we started out it was early enough it was 1995 to 1996 it was early enough that we were thinking oh we'll use the internet as a way to promote the annual book we'll write um and it wasn't more than six months before we're like okay we wrote a book but you know what the internet is where we're going to be spending most of our time telling stories and we're going to continue to do print products, but we're going to live on the net and we're going to live in digital media. And so making that decision in 1996 uh, and launch really kind of creating a website when there weren't that many websites, you know, how does your page render on Netscape? <laughs> Things like that, um, you know, way back. It's like, it's been, ex- and then also very early on, like figuring out that, like you know, this is important enough and good enough, and their audience exists that you know we can create this, we we can survive on a subscription model, um, and this is twenty years before newspapers like thought, oh, you know, we we might want to charge for that, and it's like <laughs> if you want to stay in business, you do. Um, Content shouldn't, I, I, you know, like I, everybody loves free content, but content shouldn't be free. People are doing this is for their careers and their lives, and they should be able to have a livelihood from it. So when you say quantitative analysis, what exactly does that mean? What does that consist of? There are so many different flavors anymore because, uh, again, the tools have... Um, the number of tools have multiplied so that the level of granularity of what you can get into. I mean, we started out looking broad strokes at, you know, like outcomes. So like, you know, player of individual player performance on the seasonal level or platoons or, you know, like pitching usage patterns um, and just looking at those like outcomes of individual at-bats. Now, today, thanks to the technology that is so readily available, but particularly, um, you know, is promoted by MLB.com itself, um, we can go pitch by pitch and, like, you know, look at, like, you know, how, what level of detail of, like, you know, the likely outcomes of these pitches, execution on individual pitches or fielding plays, uh, maximizing strength, you know, like how a guy, like, swings his bat. And the interesting observer's paradox, in a sense of like having discovered all of these things were measurable, is that the players have and coaches, of course, have learned that uh, you can change the outcomes and change what you're trying to do as a player. That is amazing. So when you look at all of these details and all of these statistics, how do you tie them back to history and to a person? And how do you personalize that information in your work? Okay. Well, you know, we were starting from measurable, like, outcomes of what we might call discrete events, individual at-bats um, or individual innings or individual games. And, you know, looking at those kinds of outcomes that are, you know, not just historically recorded back in to the 19th century, but, you know, observable and, you know, we can get into 
evaluating player performance on that level. But now today, thanks to all of the awesome like video and uh, data driven like you know mapping tools, um, we can get into individual pitches, individual fielding plays, individual outcomes on a level of granularity previously on un, un, like you know you 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 would dare to dream it but you wouldn't necessarily think that you could get there so today you know not only is it having an impact on where players play on the field and position themselves but it also gets into you know like this observer's paradox of batters now like understand like you know their swing paths in a much more uh, on a much more diagnostic level so that they can change, effectively change who they are as players and change the outcomes. And so, you know, just because this might have started out from initially an, in, an initiative to measure player performance, and whether you're working in a baseball front office or a journalist or a data journalist who wants to know this stuff, the players themselves are using this as a diagnostic tool to improve their performance and change everything. And since one of the fundamental things that's awesome about history or journalism is you're talking about human agency. I love watching players reinvent themselves and become different and do different things and challenge themselves in new ways. And so, the, and those end up being stories you get to tell. So, you know, data informing better choices. You know, we, we like to say that you, you would do that about like whether you were buying a house or a stereo, but, you know, making better choices in your career, making better choices uh, in, in the moment as a player. I think it's all interconnected and a lot of fun and a, a representation of where we are as a society. We get to do these things and figure these things out. As a journalist, I find it, you know, like I, I find it fascinating because you can see what the numbers tell you and what it tells you about like what a guy is doing differently. And that gives you the opportunity to ask a better question in terms of interviewing. And it's like, you're not just going up to him and saying like, wow, you know, like you're hitting pretty good. Um, you know, like, what are you doing? And it's like, instead, you know what he's doing differently and you want to talk to him about like how. And so like, for instance, uh, when I was still a reporter, I got to, you know, like I did a story with, um, I, I particularly love the, the hard, cases of like guys doing something radically different um, and outside of their comfort zone. So like um, Mike Moustakas, when he was with the Royals, um, as a left-handed hitter, had a lot of problems with hitting left-handed pitchers. And he changed, he took a year and a half of working hard to change what he tried to do against left-handed pitchers. And in terms of how he would make contact and where he would try to hit a pitch, um, and knowing what they were trying to do. And so like, essentially he was barreling up on, on outside stuff, um, from left-handed pitchers, knowing that the defense was shifting to the other side of the infield. He was going to try to hit the ball with authority against the shift, not into the shift, but to the left side of the infield and basically to where nobody was standing and do th something that people didn't expect of him but also being able to do it and execute it well. And so, and forced them to throw him the pitches that he really wanted to see, which was inside so that he could pull it and hit it to the right, hit it to right and hit it a long way and hit home runs. But that he needed to sell them on the idea that he could do this other thing to force them to do the thing he wanted them to do. And so the amount of intelligence it takes to apply himself to do that, finding a hitting coach, in this case, Dale Swain, who would work with him on it and say like, I may already be a successful player at the highest level, but I can be better. 
and I can do this thing that I can't do. And so the data tells you what he's trying to do, and it shows you the outcomes of how of how it's playing out over time and how he's getting better at it. Um, but then you get into and that just gives you the information to ask really much more interesting questions and get into the stuff that he really one he knows he knows about all of this stuff he may not necessarily tell you unless you ask him and you have to ask smart questions so if you have the data that's informing the kind of questions you're going to ask um, you can end up having a great conversation. So Mike Mustak is talking about hitting and what he's trying to do differently and how he did it and what, what kind of work he put in. That ends up being a great story and tells you something both about the player and about how serious he doesn't just go up there and swing the bat. This guy has spent a lot of his adult life thinking about how he does what he does. And, you know, not just because it's his livelihood, but because of his investment in his craft and his investment in his own personal excellence. So that's that's fun and interesting stuff. But, uh, and similarly, like a story I did on like Tim Lincecum when he was trying to like, you know, be the best possible pitcher he could be with at the end of his career with not very dominating stuff and basically trying to reinvent himself as a pitcher on the mound. And it's like, you know, understanding that he's going to be behind in a lot of counts and like, yet how does he generate bad contact? How does he generate a hitter jumping on a pitch that, might have looked like the pitch the hitter wanted, but ends up being just that little bit taken off that helps him actually get like weak contact and a bad outcome for the hitter. Um, again, I love uh, athletes aren't dumb. They're very, very smart about like what they know and what they do. And so it's like learning how to teach yourself as a historian or as a journalist teaching yourself how to talk to them about the things they can tell you, because they can tell you a lot if you know what you're talking about and you know the questions to ask that let them, because again, I mean, speaking as a woman, I, you know, like get a man talking about himself and about what he does, <laughs> you know, they'll talk forever. So how do you get them in that happy spot where they're going to talk about themselves? You talk, you ask him about what he does and how he does it. And that as, and as a journalist, you, you want to get them talking and, talking about the things they know and love. Fabulous. So honestly, I could ask you about this stuff forever, but uh, this is a gaming podcast and <laughs> you are also quite the avid war gamer. We are on the Zenobia board together for you. What is the connection between the work you're doing in sports and the, the world of gaming and particularly historical and war gaming? Well, with baseball, there's an easy connection. I, and particularly like uh, one of the, other things that I spent my time at the University of Chicago doing while avoiding my coursework was uh, playing Stratomatic baseball, and in you know with a bunch of people in my dorm who also love baseball, and so like playing with the cards, uh, you know, like again dice, cards, games, like playing leagues, you know, like spending hours and hours on drafts, and you know different leagues and different replays, and getting new card sets, and just going to town on that. Um, not only was that something you would do all year round and a lot of fun, but again, as a gaming experience, I, and again, this is me, I, I love the visceral feeling of gaming. I love the dice. I love, you know, I, I want the mono a mono, like, you know, face-to-face, -face, you know, aspect of it, of like, you know, because part of that is that it re reproduces 
the, um, you know, like if you're a manager in a major league dugout, you see what the other guy is doing and what he's trying to do, who he's warming up, who he's going to use. You know what he's, you know his range of options and you know yours and you're trying to get maximum benefit and advantage. Um, I want, you know, like you don't get that digitally, I guess, in the same way. Whereas, you know, like playing across a table from someone, you absolutely get that. And, and you want that impact. You want to be able to like, you know, I, I don't want to say like, you know, see your opponent crushed and like, you know, disappointed by defeat, but, but you enjoy it. And in the same way, like you, with the agony of being defeated and like sitting there and like, you know, feel again, it's like, it's way more fun when you're playing with other people in person. And so like all of that stuff um, and that enjoyment of it is just fundamental. And, and part of this is also like, you know, my interest in historical gaming um, goes back to my childhood where uh my best friend, like a couple of doors down, uh, he was also into gaming. And so like, you know, we were, the you know, this is again, back in the seventies and early eighties, like, you know, picking up games that, uh, you know, from SPI or Avalon Hill, uh, Freedom in the Galaxy, uh, you know, seeing what people were doing with science fiction games, uh, people, what people were doing like with uh, fantasy games on board, uh, you know, not just D&D, because we also played D&D. Uh, and so that was always like RPGs were a part of it. And then, of course, you know, once we started moving into um, not just Atari or or ColecoVision or any stuff like that, but playing actual um, games on Commodores and TRS-80s and whatever else, all of that was fun. And so, like, you know, whether we were playing, I, I don't even remember the name of the the Space Conquest game, but uh, where the, the neutral non-player character enemy always had fleet admiral bozo attacking you and so that the name of the character was fleet admiral bozo and so you were fleet admiral whoever like whoever you named yourself but then you would get it you know fleet admiral bozo is attacking you with 60 ships and it's like oh my god well and it's like so i'm always gonna have a warm spot in my heart for fleet admiral bozo turning up at the worst times but uh but there were other games that like you know again were really creative at the time and i know particularly when you talk about digital gaming. Um, but the other thing that uh, I loved was, you know, coopetition games like Mule, um, which came about in the early 80s. And so before, th this was a, rev it was a revolutionary game because it wasn't conflict. It was about colonization of a planet and you were competing against other colonists, but you could also help each other. And uh, the designer of that game, Danny Bunton, um, you know, that game is kind of singled out as as being kind of the original, you know, the route in which other coopetition kind of games or games like The Sims came from, where it's like you don't always have to blow something up and you don't always have to kill people. <laughs> um, you don't have to be, uh, what is, uh, how do people talk about D&D? &D? Uh, you're not always uh, murder hobos. Um that, you know, you're going out and you're, you're doing something that, you know, might be more constructive and kind of fun to do together. Um, and again, that was kind of going back to the early 80s, that was kind of revolutionary and, and fun and a different way to think about gaming. So, um, but I played a lot of war games and I still have war games and I still play them. But I mean, in the same way today, I'm more interested in games that are not simply uh war games or i'm interested in you know like dungeon crawlers uh that are kind of fun in their own way or or hit on particular themes like uh i can't help but love world of smog you know because 
who doesn't love steampunk? Well, I mean, some people who have no taste, obviously, but but steampunk, uh, but also um, one against many. So, like, you can play the baddies, or you can be a team of good guys, and you know, and especially with the expansions, the, the variety of flavors of fun you can have with that. Um, again, it gets into it's way cooler than just D and D was back in the day, and it's. Um, you know, it's it's also way cooler because it gets beyond like you know, you can choose a number of female characters. You don't have to just like you know be Thor um, or Conan or whatever. That you get uh, some variety, and in addition, you get a variety of skills, and it's kind of better in terms of representation. But it's also just plain old more fun, and you know, an opportunity. I think also it's a matter of design of inviting more people in. So I really was. I love what you said about getting more information about sports and about playing the better as a way of asking better questions and getting a better story. How can we apply that same strategy to games? Asking better questions with them, getting a deeper experience out of them. Well, I think that's, you know, like, I think that's where what is, what is, what is the point of the game experience essentially? And, you know, that's where, one of the reasons why I'm not interested in a lot of um, a lot of war games, which just are like you know piling on big stacks and looking for your three to one, it's like it's a math problem. And if I wanted to just play around with math problems, um, you know, I'd, I'd just I'd be playing Sudoku by myself or something. You know, like it's it's nice, um, but it's not really what I'm interested in, particularly in the intersection of history. Um, and gaming. And so I'm more interested in um, the simulation value, that whether or not this is more than just a game, does it teach me something about the period? Um, and does it make me think about some of the challenges uh, that this game is supposed to be representing? So when I think of, like, you know, uh, a good game that gets into that. And and ultimately, you know, I just I actually just sold off my copy because it was also kind of agonizing to kick around, but like Freedom the Underground Railroad, you know, where uh, that was a great way of getting into the subject of um, slavery and the expansion of slavery or the expanding power of slavery in the United States in the 1830s, 40s, 50s, um, did the subject extremely well. Uh, but ultimately, you as the player, you know, like you're you're trying to get people to Canada and you're not going to get all of the people to Canada. And you're not always going to win. And it's like, you know, emotionally, uh, the idea that a game would have that kind of emotional impact and uh, can can just literally break your heart where you're like when you're thinking about what you're doing in this game. Um, you know, on the one hand, it teaches you about the people who did run the Underground Railroad. It teaches you about the different roles people played and how they helped. And that can teach you about like perhaps thinking about yourself as a citizen and what you're going to do in life when confronted with particular injustices, but also, you know, think about your country's history, all of which I think is positive and productive, but also which, you know, like given the subject matter also can't help but break your heart. Um, but also I think dealt with it in a very, uh, because, you know, compare that to, uh, I'm forgetting the name of the game, uh, off the top of my head, but the game that, uh, 
uh, Hel uh, Hollenspiel just uh, did. Yes, this guilty land where, you know, like I personally, I have no interest in playing the power like slaveocracy <laughs> politically or and, and achieving the, you know, sustaining, sustaining slavery in this country's history. I'm not interested in that. Um, maybe I don't want to play that. I, you know, I understand there are people who, you know, just feel it's just a game uh, and are comfortable with that. Um, I think that this guilty land gets into it in a way that, again, I think is, is, you know, tough, but fair, but, um, but I know I, I wouldn't want to play that game a lot because of the way it deals with it. And, but I also understand that there's a lot to be learned from how it does. Um, but that kind of impact in a gaming experience is really kind of like it expands, um, our ability to talk about these subjects. It expands our knowledge of these subjects. It's not just go read a book. It's about like, you know, wrestle with some of the, with the issues right. involved and right. games that challenge you to do that and think about it. Um, I do want to see more of those. And so that's part of the reason why I'm involved with Zenobia, but also because I want games that, that, don't just package uh, history as fight me, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, exercises. It's more about uh, people making tough choices, people wrestling with, um, you know, existential challenges and people and, and, you know, making big decisions. And so that's where history should provide people with examples of how other people have dealt with these challenges and can inform you about how you should think about the world you live in in present. And so that's where, uh, you know, I guess <laughs> the recent controversy of, uh, oh, I forget what it was called, um, but GMT was going to do a, an Africa exploration game that was strictly from the perspective of, you know, the uh, colonizing powers and was not going to look at the experiences from, say, you know, the empire of, you know, of Ethiopia, like, you know, they have the, you know, you don't get to play Menelik and fight off like, you know, the Italians, you only get to play the Italians. Um, that just, not only did that strike me as like, look, this is, this is a war that, you know, that, that if you're going to look at Africa as a subject in the 19th century, you can't just talk about the, clo the colonial powers. You also have to get into um, some really, I mean, not just, some dark subject matter, but like literally some, you know, like the evil of um, the Congo free state and what uh, the Belgians did, but uh, what Leopold did um, and not just slave slavery as an issue, but also that people were fighting for their freedom. And really, if you're not giving players an opportunity to consider that side of the proposition that people you know, that, that the people of Africa were not just waiting to be colonized, that they did want their own. They, they did not submit to that gladly. Um, if you don't get into that, uh, you're, you're doing the history of people, a massive injustice. And you're, you're just basically like creating this question of like agency that like, uh, who, ha who has authority over their own lives. And it's basically, if you're going to tell me that, uh, a game about a bunch of, uh, white dudes with guns have all the agency. That's not a game that's very interesting to me. <laughs> and it's also not true to 
what happened in terms of what happened in Africa then uh, and what's happening in the world today. And it's also not something that's going to reach like the best possible audience. And if you want to teach history uh, or the widest possible audience, I think, you know, if you want to teach history, you want to teach history to everybody and you want to teach how it relates to all of them equally. And so that's where you have to be honest about everybody who is participating and everybody that was involved in historical events and not just um, give agency to one particular kind of person. So like me, you agreed to be on the board for the Zenobia Award. What are your highest hopes for the project and what could come of it? Ah, <laughs> Selfishly, I would say uh, I want some really cool games uh, or I want to see some really cool games. And I think we've seen from some of the... Uh, we're already seeing that. I mean, in terms of the, the breadth of topics, which I think, you know, again, reflect the diversity of the applicants themselves, where these are subjects that not everybody would have thought of as a subject for a game. Um, and so the the content itself or the subject matter itself of these individual designs uh, go way further. And that's because we're asking, you know, for anybody, like, you know, like we're, we're asking a broader group of people, like, what would, what do you want to see a game about? And what do you want to design a game about? And so like right, right off the bat, whether it's historical subjects that, you know, nobody else thought of doing or because like, you know, say they're a, you know, 60 year old white dude who never took a class on, a, you know, East Asian history, uh, hadn't even thought about doing it, you know historical game about China or something like that. Um, so as a, as a simulation, I'm really interested in that because it's like this is territory that has not been covered frequently or well. For a looking at it from the perspective of the designers themselves and their perspectives on these aspects of history, um, they're going to be asking different questions because they're coming at these, these historical events from a different perspective. And so they're, what they want to see out of a simulation and essentially the challenges themselves um, for like, who are you as the player? What are you trying to achieve? I mean, I, I mean, I know that's 30,000 foot up stuff, but it's kind of like, you know, that one of the games like right now under consideration, you know, gets into, you know, like you're essentially, you're, you're a woman in a Middle Eastern city from, you know, a couple of, you know, like from over a thousand years ago. And so like, what are you trying to do to survive and make it as a business person? You know, like, how are you, how are you putting food on the table? <laughs> and, you know, and that, and I love that. It's just like, you know, I hadn't thought about that as a game and it's like, you know, doing home industry again, th this, uh, it, it's a reflection of where we come from in American society that we've kind of positioned this. I, you know, we, we have grown up with the after effects of this phony ideal of, um, that uh, women women at home in the you know post World War II environment didn't have to work and weren't sources of income and didn't have their own home industries and home businesses um, and could just be stay at home moms and it's like you know one I don't believe in they're just being just a stay at home mom as a as a idea but also you know when you look at the history of women uh, across multiple society, you know, they're, they're busy doing shit, <laughs> you know, they're, whether it's running their own cottage industries or, you know, like finding, you know, just because like, you know, uh, 
a husband might be a farmer, like, you know, that doesn't mean that uh, his wife is a stay at home or only just working on the farm. And so getting into the decisions people have to make to sustain themselves and their lives in different periods of history and how that is a these activities aren't necessarily just gendered, but also that there are options open that women have agency in history as well as men and can essentially do different things. And so like, you know, as, as a gamer in the 21st century, I wanted games that like will give me a window into historical experience that transcends just, uh, you know, fight me kind of narratives that get into how people live and what they have to deal with. I want to touch on something. I think it's so cool that you've been able to essentially make a career that is dedicated to play. I think one of the phrases that we use all the time about both, you know, when your kid loses a sports game, you say, Oh, it's just a game. Or even now when we want to kind of downplay the political importance of, um, of games that we play. Oh, it's just a game. It's just a game. Um, do you what is your perspective on the importance of play in human life and what it can give us beyond being just play? I it's about essentially it's a it's it's social. I mean fundamentally it's about people playing with each other and the relationships you get out of out of play. I mean essentially it's human contact and I think that that's probably more important now than ever um as a vehicle for you know making connections and not only, you know, like whether you're talking about um, athletics um, and sports in terms of, you know, like interaction in, in meat space, so to speak, but also it's about like, you know, just camaraderie, competition, the most fundamental human activity, being able to do that with groups of people, whether you're doing that across a board or digitally, um, you know, and, you know, multiplayer games online, it's fundamentally, it's a social activity and it's about enjoying each other's company. And especially maybe in the enemy or the ennui of, of 21st century American society where, you know, pandemic or not, uh, you know, sitting at home and playing games or sitting at home uh, in whatever suburb and being able to so easily isolate each other Games give us the opportunity not only to make connections and interact with other people, uh, they give us the opportunity to, to just play and, and, and do that in a way that, um, I mean, I think <laughs> we, we could get into a much larger conversation about uh, socialization and learning how to interact with others. But, you know, if you're playing with other people, you learn how to interact with other people. And, you know, that's kind of basic. And so, and it's in a more of a between equals. And and one of the things that gaming does, um, particularly as, a, as an experience, is it's a, equals can be across ages, across genders, across all ranges of experiences. But, and so, you know, <laughs> wargaming perhaps being a bad example of this, but you get to meet people who are different than you are. Um, and you get to interact with them and learn and learn from the people you're gaming with. And in addition to having a good time. So, you know, like when you look at the, the, if the medium is gaming and the, 
uh, outcome is making friends or having fun, then yeah, we should all be signing up for that. And I think what you're saying really underscores the point that it is really crucial to make wargaming a more inclusive space, not just because of the historical aspect of, oh, you know, we can have ask more interesting questions with our games, we can learn more from our games, but also because you're missing out on a large chunk of the connections that you can make, the the affection that you can have for others. If you're not inviting a lot of other people to your table, you're actually cutting off, I think, a lot of your your potential social experience. Yeah, not only for yourself as a person, but also, I mean, again, I mean, I think this is also, I know some people poo-poo the notion, uh, figuring that uh, the, you know, whether or not there's a generational crisis in wargaming, uh, because we've seen other generations, you know, people were saying this stuff in the early 90s, say, uh, that, you know, video gaming was going to kill off um, board games or war games. And, and it's like, no, and in a sense, I mean, and, and I, I, I say no, not just on a, um, I, for a couple of reasons. I mean, one of them, of course, being some of us are always going to be into the tactile feel of gaming. Some of it, we're always going to love our minis, our dice, our boards. We love the stuff. And we love that as a, as a medium of interaction because how can you not? And whether that's because it appeals to our inner child or because it's just cool to have this stuff, we love that. But also because um, I think the value of the medium itself as a social uh, vehicle is something that where wargaming, I think, you know, needs to reach out. Um, it needs to escape, I think, some of the it needs to expand upon some of the well-worn paths. And I think the ways in which some war games have, war games have been reinvented or kind of challenged themselves and some designers are challenging themselves. Um, I think of like, you know, recently uh, we've, we've seen some really interesting things happen in war gaming that in terms of design ideas, whether you want to talk about like uh, card driven or card assisted action, but also, um, you know, like people who are kind of getting into to bigger picture um, designs like um, Cataclysm I, is, you know, like I don't have, I used to be more interested in World War II and World War II games. I'm less interested in it now, but a game like Cataclysm, um, because of what it does in the broad strokes and with a certain elegance kind of, you know, like gets outside of, you know, like the simply mathy exercise of so many war games and really kind of looks at broad strategic geopolitical issues, but also assigns um, historical culpability in a way that is, again, I think far more interesting than, you know, just a pile of counters and shoving one pile of counters and another pile of counters to look for your three to one attack and get that hex. I mean, you know, like I said, I, I am more interested in the broad strokes, um, historical consequences and historical actions and less interested in the math. Makes sense. All right. So first, I really appreciate you coming on here. So I'm going to ask you a couple softball questions on the way out. First, have you played baseball highlights and do you like it? I have not, so you got to tell me something about it. So, Baseball Highlights uh, 2045, I believe, is a game that reimagines baseball, but in a world where there are cyborgs and robots that are playing the game. So, you have players who are naturals, players who are cyborgs. So, somebody might have an enhanced 
pitching arm or something and then <laughs> bots. and it's a deck building game where you are building up your deck and you basically are playing cards that can either instead of having innings it's like everybody's running and messing up the other person at the same time so you can stop somebody's base run or you can try to advance your own base runs and they'll play a card that goes against you Oh, see, that sounds fun. I mean, and it's almost kind of, I mean, I don't know. That just reminds me of a game from my childhood, uh, Slapshot, which I loved way more than I should have, but was a hockey game. And I don't know Jack about hockey, but again, it was about mixing and matching and trying to build up the best possible lineup and be not a complicated game by any stretch. But the idea of like, you know, doing it as a card game and one where a deck building, that would be a lot of fun. So, so now I got to check that out. Yes, I, if we lived closer and there weren't a global pandemic, I would say come over because I love it. I love that game so much. Um, but what are you playing right now for fun? Um, right now, I'm I'm uh, actually trying to get into, and I, I, <laughs> I mean, maybe I shouldn't frame it that way. But um, the one game like I keep chewing on, and because I just love the depth, is Clash of Monarchs. Uh, mostly because I love the 18th century, but also just because uh, the multi-layered approach to um, strategy in the age of Frederick the Great is always going to be interesting. Uh, not least because there were also powerful women like Maria Theresa or Tsarina Elizabeth. Um, so, you know, it wasn't just all, uh, it wasn't a sausage party. Um as far as people calling the shots. So that's always going to be of interest. But um, the other game that I'm trying to grok um, and I've really, I haven't played with anybody and I, I just want to learn it and, and get used to it. And because again, it goes back to, uh, one of my childhood favorites, uh, you know, like I loved freedom in the galaxy as a kid. Um, and you know, that was impossible basically to play all the way to the end. And it was also kind of impossible to win as the rebels, but now I'm like, you know, I've got a copy of star Wars rebellion and, I mean, again, because, I mean, although I work for ESPN, uh, so it's not, this isn't about like promoting Star Wars, but I do love Star Wars. Uh, <laughs> how could I not at my age, but also just love <laughs> Star Wars. So we're looking at Star Wars Rebellion and uh, and also because uh, Rogue One, I think, is like the best Star Wars movie since the original Star Wars, frankly. Um, so also getting the expansion and just trying to figure out like, so how does this all work together? and how could I play this? And because this would be fun. And that's where, like, you know, again, um, whether with or without the expansion, but just, again, the, the idea that uh, uh, saving the universe and doing it in some place fam as familiar as the Star Wars universe and having fun with all of that. Um, and uh, <laughs> perhaps, you know, setting aside, yeah, okay, so as the Empire, I really am blowing up the planet and killing millions of people, and that's an atrocity. But on the other hand, it's Star Wars, so, like, you know, I can feel a little little uh, more casual about it and enjoy it. <laughs> and uh, if people want to find you online, where is the best place to do it? Probably, as much as I hate Twitter, I'd say easiest place to find me socially uh, would be out there on Twitter. Uh, at, um, which we call Ambersand uh, Christina Carl. But the other places you'll find me are usually in my Discord groups, uh, where I love talking to other gamers, uh, both in the Zenobia group, but also with a bunch of uh, friends who uh, we call it Column Shift Left, who are uh, like uh, refugees from constant world and who love still talking about gaming and wargaming. Uh, and other things. But then uh, the other place where I spend a lot of time is Board Game Geek because uh, I have 
a lot of community there. And uh, whether it's talking to other women, talking to other LGBT folks uh, who love to game, uh, talking about games and also talking about, you know, subjects beyond gaming with uh, people there. I'm one of the moderators for uh, the uh, rec for the Religion, Sports and Politics Guild at BGG. <laughs> and so although it is known for being a den of uh, what, oh, how best, a hive of villainy and scum. Uh, it very much is that on some level, but it is also, there are a lot of really great people who, you know, like even across our disagreements or differences can have some fun conversations that also sometimes wind up just being conversations about gaming. And what's your BGG handle? Uh, Diamond Self. So Diamond, the full word, and then Self, S-Y-L-P-H. All right. And then, of course, I can be found anywhere on the internet as Beyond Solitaire. So reach out to either of so if you have questions. Christina, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. This is a delight. This is way cool. It's been a lot of fun. And we didn't even get into our shared history on uh, spending time at the Oriental Institute at the University of Chicago, which you will have to regale folks with at some other time, perhaps. But suffice to say, sharing that bizarre and fun place uh, I can't even begin to describe how much fun it was. Yes, we both have had stints working and studying at a place with a questionable name, the Oriental Institute, but an otherwise illustrious history. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening, everybody, and happy gaming.